Neurological and cognitive disorders, as well as mental illness, have long been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and feared. Throughout the years, the American Psychiatric Association has discovered and sometimes removed clinical diagnoses that end up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Each week, my co-host and I will bring you a new disorder and provide you with all the information you need to better understand how the human brain works. This is Psyche Saturday. The last two episodes of Psyche Saturday, we took a look into two of the four Cluster B personality disorders, antisocial personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. Today's episode, we continue with this cluster and look at one of the most talked about but misunderstood personality disorders, borderline personality disorder. Borderline Personality Disorder, or BPD, is characterized by a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects, and marked impulsivity according to the DSM-5. It is yet another personality disorder defined by erratic behavior. The diagnostic criteria, much like that of histrionic personality disorder, requires an indication of at least five of the following markers. One, frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, whether it be real or imagined. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. Three, Markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. Four, impulsivity in at least two areas that could be self-damaging. And examples of that could be too much spending or uh, sex addiction, substance abuse, binge eating, or any other damaging behavior that can be considered impulsive. Five, recurrent suicidal behavior or threats or self-mutilation. Six, affective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Eight, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. Or nine, transient stress-related paranoid ideation, or severe dissociative symptoms. So borderline personality disorder is essentially an identity crisis. Those suffering from BPD don't quite know who they are at times, and thus it can manifest into unhealthy behaviors. And again, like histrionic personality disorder, you know, you don't need to fill all nine criteria. Um, It's just five out of the nine. Right, and you don't have it if you have one of them. Right. Yeah. You have maybe a trait 
of it. But right, you don't have the disorder. You don't have a personality disorder if you just have one. Right. And, you know, it's it, like we said um, on the last episode, personality disorders are a spectrum. We've all got a little bit of something. We've all got a little bit of a bunch of things going on. It's just a question of how able our conscious mind is to suppress you know, quote-unquote, abnormal behaviors in favor of, quote-unquote, normal behaviors. Right. And sometimes BPD is confused with bipolar disorder. Um, there are even times where mental health professionals continue to have to work with their patient to see if it is something that is more on the manic-depressive scale versus... Uh, borderline because a lot of these symptoms a lot of these criteria you'll see in people with um with bipolar disorder as well you know the 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 erratic behavior um the impulsivity the possibility of substance abuse um the suicidal ideation you know you're having this is really like where you're on both sides of that spectrum you bounce back and forth. Your your moods change erratically. So a lot of times people see it and they think that it might be bipolar because that's something that I think is much more prevalent. Um, we see people being diagnosed with bipolar disorder much more often than we see people being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So I think that people in in just in society in general are more comfortable with bipolar disorder in in not that they're comfortable around someone with it but i think they're more comfortable with the notion that that is a disorder and that people who have these specific symptoms are put into this box but as we're seeing here with this criteria a lot of that can be seen in borderline personality disorder as well. And we're also seeing in this that it's very similar to histrionic personality disorder. You know, that impulsive behavior. Um, possibly if, you know, if one of their self-damaging behaviors is, is sex. You know, we saw that with the criteria with histrionic as well, where, you know, they're very um, about that seductive you know, they're trying to pull people in. They're trying to be this like magnetic force, not necessarily that borderline um, people are as well, but it could be part of of their not knowing who they are kind of thing. And so borderline is so misunderstood by society, by the medical community and by the people who suffer from it. Because, again, it's really, like, figuring out who you are, where you belong. Like, there's some almost dissociative thing happening inside the brain that they're not sure what's up, what's down, you know, and that's why their moods change so, so quickly. So according to the DSM-5, the prevalence of BPD is estimated to be... I feel like this is going to be higher than the numbers that we've seen so far. Yes or no? I'm not telling you. 
You gotta well, guess. You have to. <laughs> Fine. Yes. Higher. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> so I was right. So it doesn't matter that you gave. It wasn't even a hint. I gave my answer before I got the hint. These people really, really care about my ability <laughs> to assess prevalences of uh, psychological. By disorders. the way, we are in a mood today. So if we kind of go off the rails a little bit on this one, apologies, because there's like, I don't know if maybe we have some... It's too much baking powder. Be careful with your baking powder, people. It can go wrong. Yeah, be careful with your baking powder, people. Yes, your baking powder people will just <laughs> F you up. Uh, so, I'm going to guess six and a half percent. Okay. So it's estimated to be 1.6%. What? But maybe as high as 5.9%. All right. Yes. All right. All right. I got it. <laughs> so you got it. <laughs> and not surprisingly, this percentage increases as we observe outpatient mental health settings as well as inpatient. And among inpatients, we see it at about 20%. And it is diagnosed primarily in females. At about 75% of cases, and so 25% in males. So again, just like histrionic, these kind of like overly dramatic mood instabilities are seen primarily in women. I really want to look into, you know, we go into like the neuroscience and everything in these, but like I really want to look into what the how the endocrine system plays into this because I want to know what hormones possibly play a part in, in this kind of dysregulation, because obviously if we're seeing it in females, females and males obviously have very different hormones when it comes to like the reproductive system. So I'm very curious to know if it has something to possibly do with that versus just something, you know, neurologically or psychiatrically. Right. Well, so it clearly has to do with both. It's just a question of which one is the primary driver. Right. Is, is, is the development of a dysfunction, does the development of a dysfunction have its origin primarily in the in the brain or does it have uh its origin primarily in the endocrine system right you know um and i would argue that in the case specifically of a disparity between genders of homo sapien that it probably has mostly to do the origin is probably principally in the endocrine system because that's where the disparity is greatest between men and women right uh, the male brain and the female brain structurally are very, 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 very similar. Um, the endocrine system is where you're going to start to see differences in right. baseline function. Exactly. Um, and so the question is, is the origin of dysregulation in the brain, which then tells, uh, you know, you know, the pituitary and, and all of those good things uh, to make the wrong amount of stuff? Or is it a feedback loop in the endocrine system that then signals the brain to have these uh, conscious um, manifestations? You know, because when someone has a psychological disorder, 
that originates that you know the the just the the behavior originates in the brain so like you're you can't have your adrenal gland make you do stuff it can just by having an over or an under active adrenal gland it can just make you feel you know physical sensations um it can make you irritable but at the end, it's you who's choosing to, to act on these things. And the choice to act originates in the brain. So behavior is about the brain. The question is, is, it a dis, it, is, the, is the function of the brain because of a dysregulation in the endocrine system? And like I said, I would tend to think that in disorders which have a marked difference in prevalence from males to females that that disorder originates in the endocrine system because that's where the greatest disparity lies. Right. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I think maybe I want to cover this when I do my epidemiology paper of the, the prevalence rates and how that actually plays into, or, or vice versa, how, how the endocrine system actually plays into these rates. Because it is... You know, it's interesting to see. And, you know, when we talked about uh, histrionic last week, last episode, um, it, it the word histrionic comes from the Greek word for uterus. So back in the day, women were seen as being, quote unquote, hysterical when they were going through mood changes because they felt that this was a a female thing and it had something to do with their uterus and their reproductive system. And that's why we have hysterectomies. That's why they like, they started doing hysterectomies basically to, to remove the womb because they found, they thought that the womb was causing these issues. So it's interesting to see how that, how that plays into actual psychiatric disorders. So, you know, were they kind of onto something? Yeah, they were for sure. It, they just didn't understand it because they didn't have anywhere near the diagnostic technology to understand exactly what was going inside the human going on inside the human body. And and frankly, the fact that they even understood what a uterus was is pretty crazy. Right. But that just came from people cutting other people open and saying, "Oh, let's see what's different in there." Came from childbirth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean the, you know, even the ancient peoples understood the difference in in behavior between the genders of humans. And there is a difference. And the difference is principally just because evolutionarily speaking, the requirements on a man are very are much more limited than the requirements on a woman when you go back historically. And I'm saying historically like Go back 50,000 years, like before even the Greeks. The man's job was just to kill things mostly. Right. So that's it. And that's why even to this day, because we like to think that we're so much different than we were 5,000 years ago or even 50,000 years ago. But we're not because evolution is a very evolution is a very, very slow process, a very slow process. So. We are the same fundamentally as we were tens of thousands of years ago. And tens of thousands of years ago, like I said, the job of a male human in the group was much like the job of a male lion in a pride today, which is just to be physically larger 
and hurt other things when need be. But even, you know, and in lions, you see, you know, an even even larger disparity because you could say like, oh, well, well, ancient humans, and again, when I'm saying ancient, I mean 10, 20, 30,000 years ago, the males were probably almost certainly the ones doing the hunting, but in lions, it's the females that even do the hunting. The only thing that a male lion does is fight another male lion. He's there for intimidation. Right. And, and he, <laughs> you know, and to, and to fight yeah. the other male lion. He does actually do a thing, but that's it. That's the one thing right. that uh, right. a male lion does is right. fight other male lions. And if he wins, then the pride gets to, he gets to go lay under his tree and the rest of the pride goes and does all the stuff. So with, with humans, it was a similar thing. The roles were a little bit wider, but the male humans would go out on the hunt and they would go fight, you know, other humans or, or other uh, animals. But for the most part in between, it was, you know, rest and digest. It was heal because the other thing was back then there were no hospitals to go to. So if anybody got injured on a hunt, even just getting a cut could get infected and you could die. So, yeah, so so the male human's role historically has just been very limited. It's really to do these couple of things and that's it. And everything else had to be taken care of by the female. And so that's why even thousands of years later, you still get this idea, um, you, know, e you know, even into the medieval period where the men's job is to just do the, the fighting and the politics and the woman is there to take care of the entirety of the household effectively. And we still have that to a degree today. I mean, even if you just go back, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years, the men would go off to work and make all the money. Um, but the, the women would be left home to, again, take care of the entirety of the house. Now, yeah, maybe maybe on the weekends, the guy would fix the stairs and change the oil in the cars and stuff like that. But, but still, a lot of the household responsibilities fell on the woman. And so, finally looping back to the point, <laughs> is that female humans have evolved to understand biologically that they have so many responsibilities that there's so much going on so their endocrine systems are designed to be doing so much different stuff the male endocrine system is basically designed to say here's adrenaline when you need to punch someone and here's serotonin when you don't need to punch someone and so as any system becomes more and more complex, it's more and more prone to errors and it's more and more prone to generating extreme values. And thus the female human uh, endocrine system is much more prone to error and to producing extreme values. And that's why you have these disorders being more prevalent in women than in men. <laughs> that's me clapping if you can't hear it. Um, I'm glad that you brought up politics because a lot of what you were just saying was making me think that, um, you know, there's always been this whole thing that like women are too emotional. They'll they'll press the button. You know, we'll go to war immediately if we have a female president. But can we just quickly talk about that presidential debate the other night? I don't ever want to hear anybody say women are too emotional to do anything anymore. <laughs> Because that was a circus and it was two men and a male moderator, mind you, who couldn't even control the situation. Anyway, that was all I wanted to say about that. So, okay. <laughs> so what is the prevalence among those in 
prison settings and does someone with BPD show signs of becoming a violent criminal? What do you think? Okay, so the prevalence in the general populace was between 2 and 6%. Roughly. Roughly. So what is the prevalence among inmates? Um, I'm going to say between 6 and 15%. Okay, and do you think that it's higher or lower in violent offenders? I feel like this is a trick question. I'm going to say it's higher. Okay. So according to a 2007 study by Black et al., Newly committed prisoners in the Iowa Department of Corrections did have diagnoses of BPD. But how many exactly and what were their crimes? Among the 220 participants in this study, 29.5% met criteria for BPD. That was 65 participants. And just as the DSM has informed us, this was much more prevalent in the female population than in the male population at 54%. 0.5% versus 26.8%. Wow. But this study did not research any participants who had committed violent crimes. However, this study did cite a previous study by Blackburn and Coed regarding violent male offenders in England. Among the sample of 164 participants, 57% met criteria for BPD. So according to this study, it is much more prevalent among violent criminals than those serving for nonviolent crimes. Wow, that's a big number. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So BPD is showcased quite significantly in a lot of inmates across, across the world. Um, I'm actually going to talk about a study that was done in Finland as well. So it's, it's again, that, that impulsivity. It's that lack of, of regulating your need and want to do something, Um, which is what we see in all of these cluster B um, personality disorders. That's, that's literally their, their cohesive trait is that erratic, impulsive behavior. Personally, I would not have thought that it would have been that high among violent offenders. So I was I was surprised to read that study. I'm not surprised at the prevalence of it just among inmates in general. In another study by Arola et al, published in 2016, the researchers observed adolescent psychiatric inpatients in northern Finland. Of the 24 male participants, 33.3% were found to have BPD, and of those eight, 50% had committed a violent offense. As for the female participants, a total of 33 were studied, and of those 33, 75.8% were diagnosed with BPD. However, unlike their male counterparts, only 16% had committed a violent offense. The majority of the females studied who had BPD did not have any history of criminality. Many other studies, as that of Sansone, Lamb, and Weidermann from 2012, 
find that while BPD is more prevalent in females as a whole in the general population, when it comes to violent offenders, it is much more prevalent in males. What do you make of that? So I would, you know, I don't know. I, I think I would want to see more details on the statistics specifically um, because I'm a, I guess I'm a little bit of a, a lack for understanding. So the prevalence, so you take a group of female violent offenders and you take a group of male violent offenders and amongst the female violent offenders, the prevalence of BPD is greater or just... No. Is lesser. Sorry. Yeah, you said yeah. it's lesser. So... So you take a group of offenders, period. Right. And that, and so that's the difference. So if you're just taking a group of offenders, period, regardless of gender, and then you're identifying those who have BPD, grouping them together, and then finding the proportion of males to females. Yes. So you take a group of offenders, you see that a certain number of them are diagnosed with BPD. You take that section. Right. Those of the BPD diagnosed individuals the majority of them are female but when you look at them separately in their genders we see that the female bpd diagnosed individuals either in in this fin in this finnish study it was psychiatric patients it wasn't offenders they were looking at their history of offenses but it was a psychiatric facility some of that the majority of them did not have offenses at all. And these were adolescents, mind you. So they may not have gotten up to that point yet as in adulthood. The males, however, predominantly were violent offenders. So while females tend to have BPD diagnoses at a greater rate than males of those people that were diagnosed, the males tend to have a greater number of violent offenses. Okay. And so thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. So I would tend to assume that that just speaks towards the propensity of males when, for lack of a better word for when, when choosing an impulsive behavior to choose a violent impulsive behavior. Uh, again, like I said before, you know, male humans have evolved mostly for punching things and stabbing things and throwing rocks. So, uh, when angry, uh, men tend to want to punch stuff more than females do. Now that's not to say that women don't punch stuff. Women, women be punching and, and, and ripping hair and, but, um, I would tend to assume, again, hashtag not a cultural anthropologist, um, that, if you somehow had access to these statistics, which you wouldn't because no one's ever done the study, historically, if you looked at every rivalry that there's ever been um, between two men in power or two women in power, that the women would tend to lean more towards... Um, they'd more more often lean towards sabotaging their rivals rather than stabbing them. Okay, they're more cunning. Yeah, but again, that I think that carries too much of a connotation that I'm, you know, because c- to say that the women are more cunning is like, oh, well, the men are the men are dumb then, and that's not what I mean to imply. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, I simply mean to imply that I think, um, 
the male propensity towards an instantaneous reaction leads to violence versus, you know, a woman's tendency towards uh, a considered reaction would lead towards formulation rather than immediate violence. Okay. Um, the point, again, I, I do circle back to the point eventually, <laughs> is that among these inmates, I would say that it's entirely possible if you somehow wiped that slate clean and you came up with the male offenders and the female offenders both being equally likely to resort to violence that the statistics would even out as well. Well, no, I mean, along those lines, we see a lot of times like women um, will hire a hitman to annihilate their husband rather than taking it out um, him. themselves. What? Annihilate him. That's a big word. Yeah. Well, I mean, I usually think of that when when I think of like a, get hiring somebody <laughs> like it's a big it's a big thing. Or they use tactics like poisoning. Right. Things right. like that. Um, men, we don't necessarily see it a lot where they're hiring somebody to kill their spouse or whatever. Uh, they usually do it themselves and it's usually in a violent manner in, you know, strangulation or, or shooting, um, stabbing more of that really, you know, strong. And I put that in right. quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> more of a a personal right level and and i think that those those choices lead to a situation in which they're more likely to get caught and go to jail and appear in a study yeah and <laughs> which i get that so thank you because that's actually the point that i was trying to make before i don't know i got so confused um <laughs> they're they're the, act, the actions that a man will choose to resolve his violent conflicts are more likely to land him in a prison study because even if you assume that women are more likely to take, you know, revengeance on someone, they're likely to choose methods which are more difficult to, uh, to... Ascertain. Ascertain. Yep. It's not the right word either. Whatever. The point is, yeah, if you punch someone and people see you punch them, they know you punch them. Yeah. But, like, if somebody just keels over from whatever... There's a whole investigation that has to be done. Right. So even if the female violent offenders eventually get caught, there's all that time in between. Mm -hmm. Versus where if a guy just walks up to his boss and stabs him, everybody saw him stab him. He's going to jail today. Right. And, you know, there were times where... So, like, I, I wrote a paper on um, male versus female serial killers. And there are many, many female serial killers. We just don't really hear about them much. But there are very many of them. Um but their tactics are usually, like I said, something that's a little less personal than males. And for a long period of time, we didn't have uh, forensic science studies in the way that we do now where they can test for particular toxins in the body. So women were using, you know, flowers, um, toxins from flowers, and just putting them in their husband's, you know, morning coffee or whatever, and they the the man would have a heart attack and they would just say, oh, yeah, he died of a heart attack, you know, something like that. So women tend to 
be very passive in that regard when men are much more aggressive and actionable in their ways of of pretty much doing anything. And like we just said, evolutionarily, that's kind of just the way it, it was supposed to. That's just how it's been. Men were the hunter-gatherers. They had to go out and and fight and use their strength and power. And women were at home being homemakers. And in a lot of cultures, women were supposed to be silent and passive. And that's kind of just the way it, it almost evolved into how women pursue violent crime right yeah that yeah i mean in general as as a a group becomes more advanced specialization becomes an important thing i mean one of the reasons that human beings are where we are today technologically is because of specialization because you have a guy that becomes a blacksmith and that's what he does is he smiths that black and then you have you know farmers who all they do is farm and that specialization leads to the ability of each individual to produce a lot more, which then creates more value for the society as a whole. Um, and so that applies not just to professions, but to the genders, because humans evolved with that uh, anatomical dichotomy where men are were generally larger and stronger on average. And so it just so happened that they were the ones that went out and did the hunting and stuff, um, which left the females to have to be in the cave or the thatched roof cottage or whatever it may be doing all of the other stuff. Um, and so that gender dichotomy, again, it's still, it's still there with us today where, like you said, the women are quote unquote supposed to stay home and be quiet. And that's just because it's not that they have to, it's just that in order to fulfill the responsibilities that in general women have taken up for whatever reason over the last several hundred or thousand years, um, you have to have a more even demeanor because if you're prone to, to fits of rage while you're baking on an old timey, you know, stove, wood fired stove and you kick the thing and knock some embers out and you burn down your thatched roof cottage. Well, that's a, that's a pretty crappy day, you know, and vice versa. It actually, it's kind of, um, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive that, you know, you, th- you think like, okay, so, so what you're telling me, Dan, is that, that women are just better <laughs> and men are worse because they're so prone to these, f- these fits of rage. But no, because for the roles that men have historically taken for going out and hunting, you kind of have to be impulsive. You know, I've, so as someone who formerly was a, uh, a competitive martial artist, I struggled with the idea of, do I, do I choose the Zen warrior path of always be as calm as possible and calculating as possible Or do I take that berserker path of let me get pissed at this guy, even if he's my friend and we're practicing, do I want to pretend like he's my enemy and destroy him? And there are people who will argue for both of those. And I would have always tended to be the former. I would have tended to say, no, 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 be as calm and rational and logical as you can and let him get all worked up and make a mistake. And then you be smart enough to recognize that mistake and capitalize on it. Um, But as I've gotten older, I've realized that there are times when you do kind of have to let your emotions take over a little bit and and it makes sense if you look at again the the men out on the hunt 
30,000 years ago, that impulsiveness, that impulsiveness drove them to potentially make an individually risky decision, an individually detrimental decision to go and push himself to jump over that cliff to grab that, that elk or whatever. Um, because by, by scoring that game and bringing it back, you're now feeding six or 10 or 30 people. So even though that individual action was actually not the right call for that person, it, it generated more positivity for everyone else involved. And so that impulsiveness, the people who, you know, the, the hunters, regardless of whether they were male or female, again, they were principally um, males for humans going back historically, regardless of what the gender was, the tendency towards impulsiveness meant that the group as a whole was thus more fit and able to reproduce more. And that's, that's what drove that evolutionary tendency for those who had to go out and make the kill and bring home the game to be a little bit more impulsive. Even if, like I said, on an individual level, it's not the right call. And so um, when you are in some kind of single combat, if you're at a martial arts tournament or whatever, um, we still have this propensity towards impulsiveness, even though strictly by the numbers, your best bet is to be as careful and calm as method and methodical as possible. Um, so, yeah, so, so even though it may seem counterintuitive, we still have that built into us that we had that males have that impulsive drive. With that said, we want to discuss the correlation between borderline personality disorder and intimate partner violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so we thought this would be the perfect opportunity to introduce these studies. And many people believe abusive partners suffer from sociopathy or narcissistic personality disorder, but could there be something else plaguing their minds as well? Studies have shown that BPD and IPV go hand in hand. Costa and Babcock's 2008 study looked at 184 couples with violent and nonviolent men and found that in the couples where men engaged in intimate partner violence, they were more likely to have borderline traits. And Heinz's 2008 study of 14,154 men and women found that BPD was indeed linked to IPV equally among men and women. Jackson et al. also found through their 2015 literature review that BPD and IPV have a significant correlation. Both men and women who have borderline personality disorder tend to have impulsivity issues as well as aggression which is often taken out on their partners. And what I was seeing a lot in these studies was the fact that, and I'm not trying to victim blame, this is just facts, this is statistical, a lot of times in intimate partner violence, there's actually a mutual violent relationship. A lot of times it's not just one person being violent towards the other. It's actually a back and forth. 
And that could be for whatever reason. It, you know, it could be that they're both being aggressive towards one another and that's just they kind of gravitated towards one another. It could be that the person who is initially the victim has now uh, started fighting back. I mean, like it could be any any reason, but a lot of what we see is is it's not necessarily just one person as a whole that there could potentially be that back and forth. There still is a dominant controller in the relationship. It's not that they're on equal ground, but for some couples, it actually is that they're kind of feeding off of one another. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it could be that they formed their relationship, you know, <laughs> based on violence, which, which, you know, is a, a vast oversimplification, but right. <laughs> they may have simply gravitated towards one another because they're both kind of impulsive people and they were just out at the bar and he was just like, hey, baby, want to F? And she was like, yeah, I like guys who just want to F. And then three years later, they just F and F, which is the one F and the other one is fight. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, yeah. We, we, we. We unfortunately see that a lot. Like, we see couples all the time. And I'm not saying we, like, you and me. I mean, like, just in general, out in the world, where that's, like, the basis of their relationship right. is fighting. Right. And um, I, I'm I'm telling you right now, that's not a healthy relationship. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're both fighting with one another and you're like, oh, that person doesn't control me. You know, we're we're still equal. It's still not healthy. It shouldn't be a battle. There's no. enough in life to battle with. No. You shouldn't have to go home and also battle. It's it's <laughs> still a toxic relationship. It's still an abusive relationship. It doesn't matter if you're both doing it or if one person's doing it. It's it's not a healthy place to be. Right. Uh so in in the studies what they found was that it didn't matter if it was the man or the woman in the in the situation. It was Basically, anybody who had BPD traits was at higher risk, basically, for being an, an abuser in a relationship. And sometimes people who have these personality disorders gravitate towards others who have these same types of traits. So I think that when we are in relationships with people who are too similar, it becomes almost a, a struggle because... You may see in that person the things that you don't like about yourself. And especially when it comes to people who have, you know, personality disorders. If you're seeing that that person is, you know, you're maybe you're both drug addicts. And you're getting pissed at your partner because they're spending all their money, all the money on on whatever their drug of choice is. And now you're getting mad because now you don't have enough money to spend on your drug of choice. Right. You know, and it's not necessarily that you're mad about the money. You're you're the underlying thing is you're mad about the situation at hand. You're mad that you're right. in this. And you're just blaming the easiest thing to blame. Right. Right. So having two partners with BPD is quite intense. And I was also finding in these studies that a lot of times 
it's found also that victims in these relationships have uh, borderline traits as well. So it literally like you can't win <laughs> in the in these situations um, with BPD in in a, an intimate partner uh, relationship that's abusive. You you can't win in the sense that you're stuck without that self-realization but but the win here is the the path out of that horrible situation is self-realization you have to understand that you are choosing these behaviors and you know again we're talking we're, we're talking about it this is psyche saturday we're, we're talking about a psychological disorder which you know technically there's nothing that you can do about if, if you have a structural defect in your brain or your amygdala or whatever it may be there's nothing you can do about that but you can on a conscious level recognize that your behavior is self-destructive and choose to fight as hard as you can against doing that so for these people that are in this relationship where he's like oh she's freaking spent all my all my crack money again maybe think like well should i be spending that much money on crack maybe my crack budget should dial back a little bit you know and that's a that's a thing that you can do yeah you know you can do that you have that ability yeah you know so that's the way out. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing. Of course not. Because like I said, there's nothing that you can do about a defect in your brain. There's nothing that you can do about it. But the, the beauty of being a human being is that our conscious mind is, you know, our id is so much stronger than in any other species on the planet Earth. You know, if, if a, you know, they, they say a dog with a bone. A dog cannot stop trying to chew that bone. He can't do it unless you take it away from him because his ego is so much stronger than his id. With human beings, we have that ability for our conscious mind to override what our what our you know our monkey brain is telling us. Right. So, do you want to know some well-known individuals with BPD? Yeah, sure. Cool. You may or may not know some of them. Nah, I think I know at least one of them. You will definitely know one of them. Mm. Yes. Um, okay, so we have Andre Chikatilo. That's a cool name. <laughs> Do you know who he was? He's the guy that invented that bitter coffee that they drank in New Orleans. Nope. No, I have no idea. Oh, yeah, chicory, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, no. that stuff is gross. God bless you oh. people, but Ooh. man, it is gross. Yeah. I'll take all the beignets. You can take all the chicory. Oh, yeah. So Andrei Chikatilo was a Russian serial killer who was convicted of murdering 52 women and children in 1992. And I'm pretty wow, sure he was also a cannibal. Mm. Um, and for a very long time, Russia did not want to acknowledge that they had a serial killer because they were like, we don't make serial killers. That's an American problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he was executed in 1994. And uh, prior to his trial, a psychiatrist evaluated him to ensure that he was fit to stand trial and concluded that he had borderline personality disorder with sadistic features. So the next person you're definitely going to know, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes, I've heard of him. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer, another serial killer who was convicted of 15 murders in 1992, so same year as Chikatilo, uh, was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences. He was ultimately beaten to death in prison in 1994. Uh, also a cannibal. 
not the guy who beat him. I just mean Dahmer yeah. was also a kind of... <laughs> Uh, Dahmer had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder, as well as a psychotic disorder. So he was... He was screwed. All over this cluster B. All over. And then cluster A, too, with the schizotypal. But yeah, he was... He just... Right. He, he never stood a chance. Nope. However, not all individuals with BPD are violent offenders, as we mentioned before. So, um, comedian Pete Davidson of SNL fame, I'm, you know who he is, uh, revealed in a 2017 interview that he had been suffering from borderline personality disorder, which was the main cause of his drug addiction. And after entering rehab and undergoing treatment, he was diagnosed with BPD and has since been clean and sober. Once he was diagnosed, he was put on a medicinal treatment plan and has been doing well. He also mentioned in that interview that he was put on a particular medication at first. It was not working. He relapsed, went back to rehab, was put on a second or third type of medication, a, a new medication, and this one has been working. So as we say all the time, if you feel like your either your therapist isn't working out for you or your treatment plan is not working out for you, continue to seek out a plan until it does work for you. There is something that will work for everybody. So don't think that because one type of medication is not working for you, that that means all types are not going to work for you because that's that's untrue. And maybe medicine is not the answer for you. Maybe you need more of a behavioral or cognitive treatment plan. So continue seeking. And perhaps one of the most well-known cases of borderline personality disorder is that of Susanna Kaysen. Does that name sound familiar to you? That is the protein that makes you sick. Nope. That's Cassian. <laughs> You may not know her by name, but she is the author of Girl Interrupted. Ah. Yes. A memoir turned movie starring Winona Ryder as Susanna. It also starred Angelina Jolie, who won an Oscar, Golden Globe, and SAG Award for her role as Lisa Rowe, who was diagnosed as a sociopath. And she deserved it. Oh, she a incredible movie, but did. especially Angelina Jolie in that movie. Yes. She crushed it. I'm sure most of you have seen that. If you have not, though, do it. Go watch that movie. That movie, and again, this is based on a memoir. Winona Ryder's character is Susanna Kaysen. She is a real person who wrote this memoir about her time in this psychiatric facility being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and meeting all of these other women in the facility who were diagnosed with so many different kinds of disorders. It is such an incredible story and and visualization of a, what a psychiatric facility actually looked like at the time. This was the 60s, I think. Um, oh, oh, Whoopi Goldberg is in it, too, by the way. She plays the head nurse. She's also, like, phenomenal in this movie. So many good people in this movie. Brittany Murphy is in it. Um, 
Oh my god, why can't I think of her name from Mad Men? Oh my god, Peggy. Oh yeah. Moss. Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> uh she's also in it. It's just there there's so many phenomenal people in this movie. Jared Leto's in it. Um but it just it tells the story of these friendships that are that are weirdly created. Um at a time where none of these women really had anybody because they had such severe psychiatric disorders. And, you know, it tells the story of Susanna who, who doesn't even know that she has this disorder and, and thinks like, thinks that, you know, the psychiatrist is, is the crazy one for even trying to diagnose her with something like that. And, and then Angelina Jolie's character, Lisa is just, I mean, like she's, the epitome of a sociopath. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's, it's such a well written, beautifully told story. And it makes you really open your eyes to what people with these uh, disorders are truly going through. So like we say all the time, don't think that people with, psychiatric disorders are scary people because as we're seeing you know nine times out of ten they're not i mean if if only you know two percent of the population even has bpd and then maybe half of the males of that two percent are violent i mean that's not a very significant portion of the population you know, so we're always going to have violence because of the way that our brains, unfortunately, uh, develop. But yeah, violence was a really unfortunately important part of the foundation of civilization. People had to kill the saber toothed tiger to stay alive for uh, 148,000 years and... They had to kill other people for a long time to keep food on the hot rock for the rest of their uh, tribe for uh, tens of thousands of years. So, And it was necessary at one point. There are a lot of things in human evolution that today we think are just total pains in the butt that were absolutely necessary for a long time. And Psyche Saturday would not be complete without going into a little bit of the neuroscience behind the disorder. A 2016 study done by Bekskowski et al. featured 48 patients diagnosed with BPD as well as 39 non-patients to examine their amygdala prefrontal intrinsic connectivity via fMRI. So in this uh, paper, deficient Amygdala prefrontal intrinsic connectivity after effortful emotional regulation in borderline personality disorder. The abstract reads or summarizes as follows. Uh, emotional instability in borderline personality disorder has been associated with an impaired frontal limbic inhibitory network. Uh, here we use resting state fMRI to investigate enduring effects in effortful emotional regulation on the amygdala intrinsic frontal cortex in BPD. So what they're saying is that the connection between your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex, which are two different parts of the brain, 
the prefrontal cortex is actually a part of your brain. It's a brain region, and the amygdala, I guess, technically is could be considered part of the brain. It's it's in the same volume as the brain, but it's it could be considered kind of an accessory. It's like the water pump rather than the actual engine itself. Um, and so this paper is discussing whether that link affects effortful emotion regulation, meaning that they're trying to say that if that connection is there, we've actually talked about this in previous episodes. If that connection is not there. Um, they're investigating that effect on people's ability to, like I said, engage their conscious mind to stop their monkey brain from making them do stuff. So basically these two areas are kind of where emotional regulation and social behavior, social norms, control of your behavior are um, centralized. So when we see a a decrease in their connectivity it is showing essentially that whatever you're perceiving from the outside world that's supposed to it's almost like what we talked about with the car crash and stuff um what you're perceiving from the outside world is not connecting properly with the way that you should be behaving towards that perception so like dan mentioned with the car accident in um in one of the previous Psyche Saturdays is, you know, usually we, we stop and look at it and we, because we're not used to things like that and we know that this is a bad situation, but for like people who are sociopaths and things like that, going by it, it's kind of like, oh, whatever. Like, cool, bad thing happened. You know, it's, it doesn't stimulate them the same way that it stimulates um, someone with um, a healthy thought process. So basically what this study is showing is that there is severe emotional dysregulation inside the the actual brain function of people with BPD. It's not just that they choose like like you were saying earlier to you know act on these impulses or something like that. It's it's something that's not functioning properly inside their brains so they can't regulate they they physically cannot regulate their emotions which is why medication could be beneficial for someone in this situation it could help to regulate that dysfunction right because there's a there's there's a, a practical um dysfunction there we you can point at it and say that's not firing the way it's supposed to. So if you can somehow figure out how to get that to fire correctly, you may in fact correct that disorder. Right. Exactly. So that's it for today's Psyche Saturday. So what we've learned is that we need more study. Uh, we need people to take this stuff more seriously. Uh, we need to fund uh psychiatric research um we need to take it more way more seriously as a society we need to put more money into this stuff we need more and more studies to be done because uh, we don't know jack about the human brain despite the fact that we've been walking around with them for two hundred thousand years so let's let's maybe learn some stuff this century hmm? i think that's why so many people are so fearful of people with psychiatric disorders because they just don't understand it you're right 
we still don't understand what our brains are capable of and what they actually do. So that's projected out into society and makes society fearful of, of the mystery of our brains. If research and scientists don't understand it fully, I can completely understand society being a little hesitant. Yes. Thank you. Hesitant. That's a good word. Hesitant. Right. But we know enough that for the most part, we should not be fearful of people with, with mental health issues. If you know somebody who, who has a true diagnosis, don't be afraid of them. Um, there's too much stigma that surrounds this and, and it makes it worse for that person. It's not something that you can control. So think about what that would be like. Don't shun somebody for something that they really can't control. And a lot of times that person doesn't know that they even have something. They may think that their behavior is completely fine um, because it's them doing it. So sometimes they need an outsider's perspective to kind of say, hey, like, that's that's not okay to do. Or, you know, I'm a little concerned for you because this happened. You know, have you have you thought about talking to somebody or, you know, just anything like that? Just, you know, don't go up to a stranger and say that. But <laughs> but if you have a friend or family member who who seems to be a little off, you know, che- like we say all the time, check in on them and uh, and maybe just you know, don't push the situation, but just kind of nudge them in the direct in the direction of of possibly seeking help. Um, and don't turn away from them. That's the last thing that they need when when they are going through something as scary as borderline personality disorder. I mean, I can't even imagine not really even understanding who I am. You know, and it's not in the sense that like amnesia or something like that, but it's 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 like an identity crisis. Like I said in the beginning, it's it's really just not understanding your place. And uh, that can be scary for the individual going through it. So be there for that person and and try to help them help them through it instead of making them feel like a, an outsider. All right, so we will see you tomorrow for uh, a regular full-length Blackbird. Regular scheduled programming. Yes. Oh, that's funny that you said that. Oh, yeah, you just posted a thing. I did just post that. Happy Mean Girls Day! Woo! All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Peace.